This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Cars in quarantine. Are you or someone you know, are you waiting for your new car to arrive from overseas? Your eyeballs might be rolling right back in your head now because you say to me, I've been waiting six, even 12 months for your new car. While there are more than 60,000 vehicles currently stranded offshore in a backlog awaiting quarantine clearance at ports all around Australia. And this is a quarantine traffic jam on a scale that we've never seen before in this country. And the worst affected port is Melbourne, where there are currently 12 car-carrying ships that were last counted waiting to offload. Now, one of the main reasons for this backlog is that expert cleaning teams are struggling to keep up to work through vehicles and to clean them for serious biosecurity hazards. Anything from seeds to pests that could have a serious impact and threaten our agricultural industry. So when are we likely to see the backlog ease? How serious is the biosecurity risk? And given that such a large percentage of these cars are coming from overseas are electric, what if we made electric vehicles here? Is that even possible? Could we try to rebuild the automotive industry in this state? And if so, what would that look like? So do you have a car stuck in quarantine? How long have you been waiting? And what are you being told? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, Matilda Marozzi, ABC Features reporter. Matilda, we're quite used to the term quarantine now. It's probably a word that many of us didn't use, you know, years ago, but now we use it on a regular basis. But this is a different type of quarantine, isn't it? It's not so dissimilar if you were stuck in a hotel room for two weeks and they're testing you for COVID to see if you're allowed in to the country or not. Well, these cars, I guess, instead of undergoing COVID tests, having detailed inspections to make sure they're not um, containing any bugs or dirt or contaminants that we don't want in Australia. But something really struck me in the reporting on this issue, Rochelle, the number of new cars being referred for cleaning due to contamination rose 88% over a year from almost 18,000 in 2021 to more than 33,000 in 2022. So I'd be really interested to find out what's been driving this jump in the number of contaminated cars. We're already dealing with COVID backlogs and supply chain issues and now quarantine's being added to the list for these people trying to purchase cars. And so they're not on top of, like, we have these ships carrying the cars stuck out at port. I think at last count there were 12 waiting to get into Melbourne. But you've got human beings on board these ships as well that are stuck, that are in quarantine, so to speak, alongside these cars. Then once you get them off port... You Have you seen some of the images where there are just hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of cars waiting on port? And this is on top of an industry that was already stretched, that already had problems and issues prior to some of these really strict COVID and quarantine regulations. So any wonder people are waiting at least 12 months for their cars. It seems crazy. Yeah. And I I know there's now these uh, apps that you can download where you can see what the ships are doing. So you might know what ship your your car is on and be watching as it circles around in the middle of the ocean nowhere. And while it's frustrating for you sitting at home being like, oh, my vehicle's so close, but so far away from me having it in my garage. Yeah. You can imagine if you're one of the crew on board thinking I'm 
I'm just outside of Melbourne, but we're not allowed to, to dock yet for whatever reason because, as you said, it's kind of it's like a traffic jam, but, but on at the seas sea. for a space at port. And the aerial shots are quite incredible, as you described, of all the cars just lined up in neat rows at the port, maybe waiting for cleaning, maybe waiting for inspection. And there's a shortage of cleaners as well to be able to do this quality of cleaning. So it feels like, and as we say so many times, in something that's been impacted by COVID, this is sort of an issue, a problem, a disaster waiting to happen. Peter's in country Victoria. G'day, Peter. How are you today? Well, what did you want to say? Uh, just in relation to the quarantine, uh, Aquas quarantine inspectors, they're very, very unmotivated, um, don't turn up at uh, when appointments are arranged, will not work overtime, want to knock off Friday at lunchtime. How do you know this, Perhaps Peter? How, how, where are you getting this from? Uh, I'm involved in uh, importing equipment into Australia. And so you think one of the problems is because those who are working in quarantine aren't working hard enough? Correct. Love to hear from people who work in quarantine to see if that's what it's like. Yeah. You're knocking off at lunchtime and not wanting to do the work. And Kathy's called in Mitchum. What's your situation, Kathy? Hi, guys. Um, I ordered a, um, a hybrid car in March of last year. And at the time, they told me it would be three to four months, um, so sort of five months on the outside. On the basis of that information, we sold one of our cars because we thought we were getting a new car soon. And guess what? Almost a year on, we don't have the car. Oof. And it's awful, isn't it? My husband spoke to the company last week because the dealerships have no information. And all the company could tell me is that after a year, my car's not even being made yet. Oh, no. So what does that mean? What what can you do, Cathy? I mean, so you've sold... How long ago did you sell your other car? Um, well, I sold it within, um, you know, a couple months of ordering the new car. So I've got another oh, car. Oh, no. So but, but, your car's not even built, let alone waiting... Car's not even built. And we have no transparency at all about when that might happen. And that's after having discussions with, um, can I name the, ca- the car company? Oh, you can tell us maybe okay. off air so that we can get those details because no, no, no. we can get them. Totally <laughs> oh, you've got a dog sounds frustrated. Yeah. I know the dog <laughs> in the background there too, Cathy. <laughs> what have they um, told you though, Cathy, in terms of how long you're now expected to wait and any kind of compensation that you might receive? Well, we haven't discussed compensation and the company basically can't tell us anything. The dealerships don't know. They just say, oh, well, we just hope that your car might turn up next month. Um, and the company, we spoke to head office last week, and they said, all we can tell you is we don't, your car's not being made yet. Wow, that sounds incredibly frustrating, Cathy. This is The Conversation Hour. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunter, Matilda Morozzi with you. And we're talking about cars stuck in quarantine. How long have you been waiting? And what's the holdup? What are you being told? Is it that it needs to go through security? Is it needs to go through cleaning checks? Or like we just heard from our previous caller, Matilda, maybe you're being told after waiting for 12 months, it's not even built yet. Exactly. As someone who knows a little bit more about this is James Vortman, his Chief Executive Officer at the Australian Automotive Dealer Association. Good morning, James. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. James, we heard then a story of one customer waiting 12 months. Different Mm. issue there. The car hasn't been built yet. But what kind Mm. of waiting times are you hearing for people who are trying to purchase new cars? Yeah, look, you know, and I appreciate that today we're talking about um, biosecurity and quarantine. But this issue of people waiting for vehicles and having to wait longer for vehicles is something we've actually been seeing uh, for about two years now. You know, this this is something that occurred um, after the pandemic. Uh, it's related to a shortage, a global shortage of semiconductors or, or microchips, um, a very important component in cars. And it's really just turned uh, the whole industry upside down. We went from a pre-COVID situation in which vehicles were uh, steadily supplied onto the Australian market. And now for the past two years or more, we've had a situation in which customers are having to wait um, months uh, and in some cases years for their vehicle, depending on the popularity of the model. So, so, so what are these microchips? Is- Can you tell us a little bit about the microchips, the shortage that we're facing why and why are we facing a shortage and how and why are they so vital okay so microchips uh you know vehicles these days are incredibly computerized uh, we have computers controlling everything from the engine management system uh, to the seatbelt system to uh you know airbags uh, and the like so the microchips control so many elements of the modern day vehicle um, what we saw when COVID hit back in early 2020 is a lot of the manufacturers thought that there'd be a, magne- a significant re- reduction in demand for new vehicles. So they cut back their orders um, of the components that make up vehicles. Um, however, what we saw is that there was an increase in demand for motor vehicles. And, you know, that's because uh, people weren't using public transport as much. They were holidaying at home rather than flying. Delivery businesses took off vehicles became uh, a product in high demand. Mm. Um, the problem was that the manufacturers, when they tried to ramp up that production, they found that the semiconductor manufacturers had started preferencing other industries, such as mobile phones or, uh, you know, gaming consoles or some of the other industries that use those microchips. So they got put at the back of the queue and they've been playing catch up ever since mm. as, as um, you know, as they've, they've sort of, put in those orders for microchips. So we've heard there about some of the original causes of delays, but when did biosecurity concerns start adding to the time people need to wait for their vehicles, James? Yeah, good question. So uh, I think it's important uh, to say that biosecurity uh, for vehicles uh, is not a new phenomenon. It's Vehicles coming into Australia have always been subject to these tests. And I do remember prior to the pandemic, there being a situation where a lot of vehicles were being checked for a, an insect known as the stink bug. Um, and at the time, that was adding delays. But this is, um, in the last few months, I'd say we've seen it at a very different scale, a lot more vehicles um, needing to be checked. And the reason for that is, while all of these vehicles were delayed through the microchip uh, crisis, they started having to be you know, and the supply chain was disrupted. They were being stored in areas um, in the country of origin where they were manufactured, often sitting in paddocks, 
or in car parks and, you know, sitting there for a prolonged period of times, which just increased the risk for things like stray seeds or soil fragments mm. or insects getting into the car. Well, actually, so that, that's why we're, we're needing so many more cars to be processed and are probably being identified as higher risk to, to Australia's biosecurity. We're going to speak to a biosecurity expert in just a moment because I guess now more than ever we're more aware of some of the biosecurity risks to our agricultural sector. We've seen everything from foot and mouth to lumpy skin, you name it that has you know really frightened many from the agricultural world but James Fortnan text here and I'm just curious to see whether or not you've heard of anything like this happening on a regular basis so it says I have friends who ordered a car and within six months they were offered an extra fifty thousand dollars for someone else to jump the queue and buy that car off them are you hearing yep Look, it's a distorted market. Um, it's, it's, as I said, the whole industry has been turned upside down. And um, for certain vehicles that are in very high demand, we are seeing those kinds of behaviours, people buying them and then almost immediately selling them for a lot more than what they bought them for. We're seeing some used cars um, being sold for more than a new car would be sold. So, yes, we are seeing some of this behaviour because the market's broken um, often people uh, are, are taking opportunities on the private market or are, are trying to, uh, you know, capitalise on, on an asset that they've purchased, which is potentially worth more um, because you can get it sooner. So, yes, we definitely are seeing those kinds of behaviours. I wonder, from your perspective, is there a light at the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. here? Do we know if it's going to get better, this situation? Yeah, look, what the manufacturers are telling the dealers is that um, the situation is improving steadily. Um, we're probably still expecting to, to see delays throughout the course of 2023 or for most of this year, but we're really hopeful that it will start to improve towards the end of the year and hopefully normalise some stage next year. So that's the, the official line we're getting from, from our manufacturers. It must be said, though, that these delays don't apply equally to every single make and model. And um, we always advise customers to call your dealer Ask them which cars are potentially in stock, which cars have a, a, a you know more of a, a certainty around their their supply, and which don't. There are cars that are going to be two years to be delivered, um, but there are also cars available. Uh, you know, at, at a month or two notice. Just imagining, moment. like, knowing where your life will be in two years <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and whether or not you're yeah. even going to need a car. Just finally, James, we have seen prices of second-hand cars, for example, as you just touched on before, go through the roof as a result of yeah. this. Many stories of people who are selling their second-hand cars for more, if not the same amount as what they originally purchased them for. Are you expecting the market to remain just that crazy whilst we still have these backlogs the second hand car market will be just as tight and that people are going to really be pushed no look we're actually starting to see um that that second hand car prices are starting to trend downwards Uh, we've seen that at, at least in the last six months or so they are still higher than they were before the pandemic but I think the trend shows that the situation's gradually normalizing and I think that's a product of the new car situation finally starting to normalise and I think the used car will follow, uh, market will follow suit. So so we do believe that, that the market's um, sort of turning and will uh, you know, start to favour the consumer more and more. James Vortman, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. James is the Chief Executive Officer at the Australian Automotive Dealer Association and just really interesting to hear there that this has started with a different problem that's had all these knock-on effects that's leading to the situation 
we're in now. And the fact that you can get your computer game, your Nintendo built with the microchips at the moment, but we're just not getting <laughs> the cars built. This says, I've been looking to buy a new vehicle and I've been watching the car sale app and it seems lots of dealers are registering new stock and trying to sell second-hand cars, maybe driven with 50Ks for a large premium, says Andy. And others saying, isn't there a worldwide labour shortage? Surely that's got something to do with it as well. And Tony says, biosecurity is number one. These pests are in the country, or once these pests are in the country, it's too late. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Michelle Hunt and Matilda Marozzi with you. And of course, you can always listen to us on the ABC Listen app wherever and whenever you are, you'll be able to listen to ABC Radio Melbourne. Matilda, this text that says, I bought a Toyota Camry hybrid last year, $44,000 and 9000 on the clock. Salesman told me last week I could sell it for its original price. I had a relative actually who bought a car recently and uh, got a car that had only been driven for a little bit and paid more than a new car because it was available to drive away then. And it's something that if you had have suggested that to me five years ago, yeah. I would be like, there's no way you're paying more for secondhand cars than new ones. And even though James Fortman said that that's starting to ease and stop, I can't see how that's the case, given that we're hearing today that people are being told they need to wait two years, that they're waiting over 12 months for their car, 12 months and the car hasn't even been built. While there's pressure on those new cars, especially the amount of electric vehicles, as more and more people want to be able to switch... If those cars, if we're not available to get our hands on them, if they're stuck out at port, then surely that's going to keep the pressure on the second-hand market. The other thing that has changed in the last few months, though, has been the cost of living pressures. And I do wonder if demand for the cars has gone down as people have had a look at their budget and how much things are costing and maybe their job security and said, car's the thing to go. Maybe maybe, or maybe or I don't want a new car, I'll just keep my old one for a bit longer than, than I'd first anticipated. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, hopefully, for people looking for cars, the prices ease up. But as you said... It's hard to see at the moment with the demand yeah. and the availability if that had happened. And um, especially if anyone was in a two-car household, maybe a lot of people thought it's time to scale that back to a one-car household. Dr Andy Shepherd is the CSIRO Director of Health and Biosecurity. Dr Shepherd, when we talk about the biosecurity risks and the extreme and intense cleaning that needs to be done of these cars as they're waiting to come offshore, what are some of the security risks? Uh, good morning. Yeah, look, the um, the uh, arrive, potential arrival of exotic pests into Australia through through uh, supply chains like uh, importing cars is a major risk pathway for Australia because there's very little regulation internationally around controlling what we call hitchhiker or contaminating pests that come in on these commodities that aren't foods or or other uh, other um, commodities that would normally attract pests. And so it's it's a critical issue for Australia to make sure that we maintain our biosecurity through these pathways. And Andy, when you talk about these hitchhiker pests, um, why are we worried about them? Oh, because these these are major, potentially major pests of our uh, agricultural and, and horticultural sectors, but they're coming into Australia through through these um, uh, pathways that are bringing in vehicles and machinery. Uh, the, so so they're really hard to regulate. One of the 
I guess, issues and security risks that we've seen just recently. And there was a huge amount of fear for the agricultural sector was foot and mouth disease. And for those that were travelling back and forth from Bali and parts of Indonesia and how easily human beings could have just brought back something on the bottom of their shoe, for example. I mean, is that the sort of thing that you're talking about and how easily something can be transferred from one part of the world to the other and then you know there was talks of it wiping out complete sections of of meat and livestock industries yeah look i mean foot and mouth disease is a classic example of a high 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 risk threat that we need to be very careful about and obviously uh, there was a lot of energy and effort and investment put into regulating that pathway from from bali and making sure that we've got systems in place to to stop uh, the virus coming in but these um, these big commodity shipments that come in through 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 the uh, the marine transport system uh, propose you know they they create much broader risks which are much harder to manage directly. Uh, Andy, I wonder if you know if we get a, a ship full of cars into port and there's concerns that it may be contaminated with some kind of biosecurity hazard. Uh, in terms of what, what needs to happen to that shipment now in terms of the cleaning and the inspection? Do you have an idea about how that process works? Well, let me, let me start by saying the reason we've got the, the, the problem at the moment is that during the pandemic, uh, when, uh, when, sh- when shipments of cars re- really rapidly declined, you know, most of the car producers have had to stock those cars somewhere. And, and often they'd stock them outside, often in fields. And in those fields, that gave an access of the opportunity for insects and snails and, and weed seeds to get um, attached to the vehicles. And so that's created a much higher risk profile in terms of these pathways. And that means when, when shipments do come in, they need to be inspected very carefully to make sure that these contaminant species and pests and, and, and seed weed seeds haven't uh, become attached to the vehicles. And of course, the moment is something is found, then that reds the red, raises the red flag and they have to go and do a detailed quarantine inspection of each vehicle, which, of course, is labour-intensive and takes time. Do we have... I mean, is this an expert-level, like, workforce? Do we have enough people that are doing this that have the skills in order to do this? Because I can imagine it would take a long time to clean and to go through just one car, let alone... Especially if you're looking for something thousands. as small as a seed... Yeah, that's ...or exactly a bug right. or a piece of dirt, I just... Yeah, I, I don't oh, know. My, my cleaning honest, skills are not that detailed. That's for sure. I don't work in the operational space. Unfortunately, I don't have the experience to understand to, to be able to answer that question. All I can say is that you know the the biosecurity officers we do have on our borders are very highly trained in terms of uh, and understanding what they're looking for and are doing their best to speed these processes through as fast as they can. So stink bug is one of the insects that I know is of a lot of concern to people. It doesn't have the most attractive of titles. What? What? Why is the stink bug a, a, an issue? Oh, well, uh, the it's called the brown marmorated stink bug, to give it its full name. Thank and you. that's been a major con- <laughs> concern for Australia for, and, and for New Zealand for, for a number of years. And in fact, every time we know when the stink bug season is, we know where in the world stink bugs are most likely to come in from. So we have an extre- a huge amount of data to help us understand those risks and try and manage them. The reason people don't want stink bugs is because they've already inv- they, they come from Asia. They've already invaded Europe and North America where they're having huge impacts on things like um, fruit and vegetables with their sucking mouth parts. Uh, and we don't want them in Australia. So, uh, so it's a critical threat for our horticultural industries but in particular. And so we're doing everything we possibly can to keep them out. Uh, we, 
I guess, ramping up our biosecurity of all when we sort of make this quite a long list of things that have affected just our general way of life and many of our industries, in particular our agricultural industries over the last couple of years. Are we being stricter than we have in the past when it comes to releasing these cars and getting them offshore and out into the community? I don't think we're being I don't think we're being stricter. I think we're just being smarter in terms of our ability to pick these things up. We've there's been a lot of investment both in the government and 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 through research over the last years in terms of understanding the risks of these supply chains coming into Australia. And obviously when you better understand the risks, you can better target where those risks are and you can um, manage those risks as they come in. So I think we're getting smarter at it rather than mm. we're being we're, we're being more in- intensive. Dr. Andy Shepherd, thanks for your time. No worries. CSIRO Director of Health and Biosecurity. How long have you been waiting for a new car? And I'd also love to hear if you actually work within the sector, if you work either within quarantine, if you're someone that is seeing the amount of cars that are coming in or not coming in, if you work within the cleaning sector, what are some of the issues that you're seeing? And how long are you waiting? I think at the moment... The winning number is one year and the car's not built or versus two years if you see something on the floor. As I was saying before, Matilda, I just, who knows what we're all going to be doing in two years' time and to make that commitment to purchase a car that far ahead. Yeah, exactly. And there's an interesting text here from Mary in the Mornington Peninsula saying that we bought a car last October. It arrived on the docks in early January But due to insects or seeds, it is in quarantine and we can't get information from the local dealer or the manufacturer to say when it might come out. So that's one of those situations where the cars in Australia, it's built and it's just waiting for the quarantine inspection and that's what's delaying Mary in in getting her car. So it's impacting yeah, so many people right now and, and then... As you said, the flow-on effects to the second-hand market. It's They're not the just only people. winners in this, yeah, the second-hand car. <laughs> if you're selling, not <laughs> if, if you're, you're trying selling. to buy. Yeah. Exactly. Mike Sinclair is Editor-in-Chief of Car Sales. Mike, I mean, how much of this is a long time coming, but like so many other issues, COVID, uh, the pandemic that we're still living through has really just thrown a spotlight on something that already had a lot of problems to begin with. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, we can't take a trick at the moment in the automotive industry. Um, quarantine's always been an issue, but um, as the previous caller said, it was particularly limited to times of the year and cars coming from various places. Um, what we're seeing now is a more uh, sort of a more uh, an aggregation of cars coming in single be- single ships. So you're getting cars from more cars from different manufacturers coming from different places. And that compounds the quarantine issues. What seems to be the case, though, speaking to a number of the manufacturers, is they're not sure that the docks are processing the cars at the same rate around the country. And some of the docks seem to be um, quicker at getting the cars through. And that, in turn, is affecting where cars are landed. So why is that? Why are some quicker than others? Is our previous caller right? Some You've just got lazier workers on on some docks or is it that they've got better systems more workers far be it for me to point the uh, point out the challenges with the australian dock systems but i think there are some inconsistencies in both how quarantines applied but also how cars are processed it appears at the moment that melbourne is by far the worst um and it's to the point where you know talking off the record to some manufacturers um 
they are you know reviewing where they allocate cars and they're also um, from their shippers um, being told that perhaps they will go to ports other than Melbourne um, in preference. So, it, it's so a, Mark, it's a potentially, uh, potentially cars being shipped to Sydney or Brisbane and then being driven, trucked down here, mm. or are we just not getting them? No, I think what's tending to happen is those cars are perhaps being reallocated to different um, um, processes, to different dealers. So Victorians are missing out. Customers. Potentially, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So if you're going to buy a new car, say you live in Sydney or South Australia. (laughs) I had a text before saying there's no problems in South Australia. Fly over to Adelaide to pick up your car and drive back to your home in Melbourne. Well, I guess the the concern is that, you know, um, these cars are being found to be contaminated and need to be treated. Mm. um, And if there's not a problem in Adelaide, then um, potentially I'm not sure the cars being shipped, unshipped or... Sorry, taken off the ship in Adelaide will be any different from the cars being taken off in Port Kembla or somewhere like that. Yeah, they still need to be searched and cleaned. Now, now upwards of 60,000 cars apparently stuck on ships or in quarantine. It seems like a very high number, Mike. Is it high historically as, as far as you can remember? Well, Australia tends to sell somewhere between seventy five and 100,000 cars, new cars a month. Wow. So... Um, you know, if you've got uh, 21 to you know 28 day delays on a on a big port like Melbourne, um, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to get through to that sort of 60,000 number. I, I don't know whether anybody can categorically state that for a fact what that number is, um, but it's a significant number to the point where the, the, you know there's there's um, effects other than just end customers here in that you know there is um, quite a vibrant. Uh, left to right hand drive conversion business um, happening in Victoria with the large American um, utes or trucks, and uh, and you know some of those production lines are now uh, at peril because the, the cars or well, the trucks can't. Yeah, get gosh, the, the sheer weekend. number of those pickup style trucks, and I know Mike, you actually joined me on the conversation hour when we looked at the huge rise of big cars in yeah. the state and where they're coming from, but. Strangely and anecdotally, I've seen a lot of left-hand drive cars lately for whatever reason. Pre-converted. Yeah, pre-converted <laughs> and just waiting. Where are most of our cars coming from, Mike? Because lots of people are texting in saying, look, again, you can take this right back to the writing being on the wall that we just don't make cars here anymore, that we completely decimated our automotive industry and now we rely on cars from overseas. Well, we have always relied on cars from overseas because even you know, at a, you know, it was certainly within the last twenty years, the the number of cars built in Australia were not a significant proportion of the of the total um, marketplace. But it, it's interesting in that we have cars coming from all around the world, and some of the brands that you might think would be, say, you know, a purely Japanese brand, many of the Toyotas, for instance, we get, um, and the popular models come out of Thailand. Same things goes for brands like Honda and Nissan. Um, so, you know, some of the um, prestige German brands, the cars actually come from America. So um, it, it, we do get them from all around the world um, and a surprising number of countries are shipping cars into Australia. There does seem to be some particularly mm. um, affected brands in terms of the, um, 
the quarantine. Though. I just wonder if it'll change behaviour in any way. There's a text here from Ross and it says, imagine if Australians were happy to buy half-decent locally built cars instead of extreme or either cheap or aspirational imported brands. Sometimes, Mike Sinclair, change is forced upon us because of whatever reason and I I wonder whether you've noticed a shift in the type of cars we buy, uh, the price we're willing to pay, where they're coming from, or just consumer behaviour because of everything, this perfect storm that's occurring at the moment. The, the thing, Australians are still totally welded onto utes and large SUVs or medium to large size SUVs. Um, they now demand, well, probably or command around about three quarters of the new car market. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, we love a ute, we love a truck, um, and we're continuing to do that. A lot that. of that's so, got to do with the tax incentives and that, that you get with utes and SUVs, though, yeah? Look, there, there are some benefits, not so much with SUVs anymore. There's some small ones with um, with utes, but the really the interesting thing of that is they have to have, to get those real tax incentives, have to carry a certain payload, and many of the popular models don't even set, carry that payload. So. Uh, and Mike, we just love a you. Uh, <laughs> Mike Sinclair is Editor-in-Chief of Car Sales. We've had a few te- text messages along these lines, Mike, saying, why don't we just say we won't accept cars that have been stored like this, say, in paddocks, put it back on the manufacturer? What, what would you say to that, Mike? I think it's um, it's good in theory, but that just means we just won't get any cars for an awful long time. I'm not convinced that... There has been, there's been some, um, I guess, uh, backloading of these vehicles or some late loading of these vehicles, but pro- globally production has been challenged anyway. So many of these cars are being built um, on a uh, as-needed basis and are coming to the country pretty quickly. What complicates the factor is you don't necessarily have one ship of one car or one type of car from one place. So they're, they're basically um, building up shipments of vehicles, um, perhaps not necessarily in the place of manufacture. Um, so the cars are potentially being stockpiled in other places. So that it's a much more complicated issue than just saying, you know, send us some clean ones. And just finally, Mike, I know in the past when we've spoken in particular about electric vehicles and everybody says, oh, yeah, but there's no electric ute. Well, my colleague and host of the country, our Warwick Long, he drove, he test drove an electric ute the other day, mate. And, you know, he said, look, it wasn't the best, but <laughs> it, it's, you know, there is certainly an electric ute out there at the moment, Mike. So have you driven there's one bo- yet? Yeah, yeah, well, I have. And the one, if it's the same one, it's far from not the best. It's terrible. But, um <laughs> Um, but there are there are some interesting um, movements from Australian established businesses that are looking at viable conversions, electric conversions mm. of some of our most popular models. We might and touch on see, that a bit later in the program. There'll be pr- production lines coming for those not not so far away. It's really aimed at, at um, businesses first, but um, you know a viable electric ute isn't that far away. Having said that, electric's not going to be the answer for every type of use case. Mike, as always, thanks for your time. Cheers, guys. Mike Sinclair, Editor-in-Chief of Car Sales. Rochelle Hunter, Matilda Morozzi with you. This is the Conversation Hour. And when we talk about cars being stuck out at sea and are waiting to arrive to Port Matilda, with every ship that's out there, there are human beings on board those ships. There are seafarers that are on board as well. And Alex Coombe is a seafarer. And Alex, do you think the... The seafarers, the, the human beings that are, are stuck on board with these cars are being forgotten in this conversation? 
absolutely say that. Um, COVID, we saw people stuck, you know, months on end uh, under the legislation. Uh, it's um, stated that you've got to have one break within 12-month periods, but that was even overlooked. People were staying on for 12 to 14 months at a time, and that was expected by companies that people would put their lives on hold so as cargo kept moving around the world. One month, uh, one break in 12 months doesn't sound that great to me as a beginning point, Alex, but you're saying some people were stuck on ships nonstop for potentially more than a year during this period. Yeah, absolutely. One of my good friends, actually, he did, I think it was 16 months straight, didn't get a chance to see his family. So it was really, really tough for a lot of people. What kind of impact does that have on you and your colleagues, Alex? Um, we're very lucky. You really form a really close-knit family type um, thing on board. But at the same time, you know that, you know, your family's at home. There's still birthdays. There's still weddings. There's still celebrations that you're missing out on. And we all understand that you have to give up those things when you become a seafarer. But not to that extent, unfortunately. Is this, and um, we've spoken about the car industry, but when we talk about the, well, just the amount of goods, and I think, Alex, last time we spoke to you, as we learnt about the role and the importance of seafarers for this country and for this state, the amount of our goods that are that come by sea, that are shipped, would absolutely blow the minds of the average person how much we rely on people like yourself and the work that you do. And it feels like it's not necessarily getting any better that there's just more and more goods being held up and that you're spending longer and longer at sea is that something that concerns you and your colleagues oh to be honest we just make sure that the cargo gets from a to b in a safe manner uh we don't have much to do with the logistical side that's definitely sure side but we still feel the pressure we know that you know people are waiting for their cargo companies are waiting to get their cargo um there's always a lot on the line, I guess, which we definitely feel that through the chain of command. Uh, Alex Coombs is a seafarer. Just wondering, are there many Australians who work in this industry, Alex, or is it dominated with people from overseas? Um, the Australian shipping industry definitely isn't what it once was. Uh, there's still quite a number of us Australian seafarers, but majority of cargo that you'll see come in and out is, um, yeah, international seafarers. Alex, thanks for your insights. We appreciate it. Are you at sea at the moment or are you back home? I'm at sea. I'm on a ship right now, actually. (laughs) Where are you heading? Uh, I'm just in Fremantle at the moment. Um, I'm just on an oil ship, so we're just moving oil. And how long have you been at sea at the moment? I left home in the second week of December oh. and I haven't been at home since. <laughs> oh, wow. And when are you due to be home, Alex? Uh, two weeks from now. Okay. Well, we're crossing everything, mate, that you get home <laughs> in two weeks. Thanks so much for spending Thanks. some time with us. Thanks. Alex Coombs there. She said, see, Fira currently at sea as we speak. And on the conversation hour towards the end of last year, Matilda, we did a, a seafarer's special. I learnt so much. It, for whatever reason... It's not an industry that I had thought much about. And then I was quite ashamed to realise that I hadn't thought much about it because I had relied 
on it so much as when we all rely on it so much, not just for cars, but for yeah. the majority of, of what we consume and use. And if people are interested in catching up on that, you can listen on the ABC Listen app, find the podcast to find out more. But just to think about, imagine if I started work in December and I was still at work, I hadn't been home, I'd be outraged <laughs> if most people were in that situation. But that's just part of the course, I guess, if, if seafaring's your job. Steve's in Benella. Morning, Steve. How are you there? Um, sorry, I've forgotten your name. My name's Rochelle. Um, Welcome. Thank, thank you, Rochelle. Um, yeah, seafarers. Let's yeah. face it, the most noble of all the um, Defence Force uh, disciplines is the Navy. They not only have to put up with enemy firing at them, they have to put up with the seas, which will kill them as well. And that goes for the Merchant Navy people as well. And the... Um, the seafarers that man our cargo ships. Yeah, they're incredible. And the work that they do, you're so right. If it's not what they're protecting or, or what they're trying to transport, then there's the physical sea. There's the physical elements uh, and being able to, to manage and, and work that job. It's fascinating. I couldn't agree with you more, Steve. Thank you. This is the Conversation Hour. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunter, Matilda Marozzi with you. Lots of texts, Matilda, saying, well, why can't we just make more of the pieces of the car here? And when we think about the automotive industry in Victoria, yes, that pretty much completely shut down. But as we move towards electric vehicles, what constitutes making a car now and a viable car manufacturing industry? It's very different to... 10, 20, 30 years ago and the idea of making cars doesn't necessarily mean a car rolling off the assembly line. It could be making all of those bits and pieces. It could be looking at lithium or batteries or maybe we could find a way to make these microchips. You know, Is there another way that we could take some ownership of the car industry again in this state? And if as people are waiting years and years for cars, they'd probably be thinking the exact same thing. Yeah, exactly. It's um, really... COVID just really cemented, didn't it, how much we rely on overseas imports and how far away we are from a lot of these countries. And when there's problems with the supply chain, we just saw huge implications for that when it comes to us as consumers. We just assume we could get things when we wanted them. And now we're seeing, oh, it's not always like that, especially if you don't make stuff here, you can't prioritise your country to get first in best dress. Other, other countries are busy doing that where they make the products. So. Stuart Charity is the CEO of the Australian Automotive Aftermarket. Stuart, when we look at, I mean, we already heard before from Mike Sinclair, a huge number of vehicles being uh, converted from left-hand side to, to right-hand side. Are we missing an opportunity in Australia at the moment to make more of the cars here rather than relying on overseas? Uh, look, it's a good question, and I'd like to be able to say that um, we could reboot our car manufacturing industry, but that's going to be highly unlikely. Um, you know, we we had, uh, well, many, many years ago, we had up to six manufacturers here, but um, when they uh, closed, we had um, we had three down from four, and um, it got to a point where Toyota was the only manufacturer that was prepared to uh, continue on in Australia, and, and they just couldn't do it. Uh, on their own and and the reason is well there's a number of reasons um, one is it's not just building a car factory you do need the uh, co-located supply chain so mm. you, you need all of those uh, companies supplying all the various bits uh, for, for the assembly and and um, you know we're a one million sales market uh, a long way from anywhere else it's very fragmented and we're right-hand drive so for all of those reasons I, I think it's going to be um, 
difficult to, to reboot a car industry. But having said that, I think electric vehicles, if it was ever going to happen, it's, it's going to happen with electric vehicles because they've got less parts on them. So there's less complexity um, and there's greater flexibility in, in the manufacturing. But um, um, it, it's still a long shot. And I, I think, um, quite frankly, our, our opportunities um, uh, are in the, the, the part side of things, as mm. you said, in the introduction and, and in the conversion side of things. And Stuart, can you tell us a bit about what is happening in terms of, you know, these skilled um, engineers and people who have worked in manufacturing, have some of them transitioned to instead of building cars from scratch, uh, altering them afterwards, things like conversion? Is that a big industry in Australia? It, it's a it's a big and, and growing industry. In fact, um, uh, Mike from Car Sales mentioned um, uh, the, the uh, left to right hand drive uh, conversions that Walkinshaw Automotive are doing so. Um, you know, they're, they're uh, employing just on the Ram uh, production line 640 employees uh, and gearing up to do uh, around 20,000 conversions a year. You've got, wow. um, uh, they're also doing the the, the Chevrolet Silverado um, and the Toyota Tundra is coming um, late. See, I'm going to say something 24. really stupid here, but I actually never thought about the fact that when these cars are coming from overseas. I would just presume that they would be built for the Australian market and be built right-hand drive. So you're saying that they're all built the same way and then we have to convert them here and as a result we've got a growing industry of people that work purely in conversions. Exactly right. Wow. And that goes for um, uh, other things as well. We, we talked about, or you talked earlier about the fact that we can't uh, get electric utes at the moment and they're going to be a number of years away, or good ones, uh, fit-for-purpose ones. Um, um, so, you know, there's SEA Electric have just um, announced a billion-dollar um, program to convert uh, 8,500 diesel Hiluxes and Land Cruisers to, to, to electric over the next five years. So um, b- because cars are built on global platforms and they're not necessarily fit for the Australian market, um, that is creating a, a massive industry in Australia in, in converting those vehicles or or modifying those vehicles to make them fit for purpose for the Australian market. And it's something that we're actually really good at because uh, we do really uh, high-quality technology and, and innovative products um, and um, we've got some of the best engineering talent in the world. So it really uh, fits in with, with our strengths. Stuart Charity is the CEO of the Australian Automotive Aftermarket. Stuart, I wonder if I did get a vehicle and decide to you know convert it from left to right-hand drive or, or from... You know, petrol to electric. What does that mean for the warranty? Is it totally voided then if someone's uh, changed the car so substantially? Um, so the, the the conversions are being done um, with with the manufacturer's blessing. In fact, you know, I talked about Ram. Uh, we're now the second largest Ram market in in the world. Wow, the US and and um, so lots of people not happy about that. By the way, <laughs> on the text line. <laughs> Um, so they come through through a dealership uh, and and, um, and come with a full factory warranty. Um, I, I'm not I'm not sure of the situation with um, SEA uh, in terms of converting, but um, my my understanding is what that they would be likely to offer um, a full warranty on on the powertrain, so the electric powertrain that they're modifying their own and warranty, yeah. and then the rest of the vehicle would be under the manufacturer's warranty so um um yeah they, these are brand new vehicles those, those electric units that have been converted are, are are being done for fleet applications so mining in this case um, um and, and it, it's simply a, a, so they would come with a full factory warranty
I mean, there's already taxis saying, can we please do something to stop the import of these huge monster trucks? And as I said, we did a show on big cars just recently and the sheer number of those. Just finally, Stuart, when we talk about training people up and the job opportunities here and the amount of conversions, we need to almost think away from the idea of being a mechanic and looking at becoming an electrician and a different set of skills to what we once thought of when we thought about the car industry. Yeah, look, um, again, it's an interesting point, but, um, I mean, electric cars are, are still cars. Um, it's, they've still got uh, suspension and, and um, uh, electronics on them and that sort of thing. Um, there is certainly different skill sets and different equipment. Um, Software so engineers now quite involved in manufacturing cars, I understand. Exactly, and service, yeah, certainly, um, yeah, we, we actually had a presentation from... From Bosch um, last week, they're a major um, equipment supplier to the car industry. And, and, oh, um, do they make dishwashers? <laughs> Washing machines? <laughs> a, a third of their workforce are now software engineers. So, wow. uh, but that's that's irrelevant of whether it's electric or, or yeah. petrol or diesel. The, the, the electronics that are going into vehicles now are, are very sophisticated. So the the um, skill sets and the equipment that technicians need to, to service and modify them and, and repair them are, are, are changing as well. Um, so there's certainly some skill sets and some safety implications with, with electric. They, they have uh, 800 volts of um, power going through them. So if you um, don't know what you're doing, you could um, end up seriously injured or killed. Um, but uh, they are still cars and, and um, our industry is being trained up to, to service those as we speak. Yeah, there's so much to this. Stuart, thanks for your time. Thank you. Stuart Charity is the CEO of the Australian Automotive Aftermarket. And Matilda, when Stuart then was talking about, you know, just the high level of electrics going into or electronics going into cars and the mention of Bosch there, I was looking potentially because I think our washing machine's on the way out, right? So (laughs) (laughs) I haven't bought a washing machine in a very, very long Long time. time. The electronics i needed this young person to talk me through how to use this washing machine on the floor i was like you've got to be kidding me it does this it does what i need to do what if the days of just simple turning the dial (laughs) delicates silk are long gone you can really start to see why today though when we've gone through all of the reasons and all of the issues as to why so many victorians are waiting years it turns out for a new car this is not something that is just a result of covid and of the pandemic it's also a result of so many things including biosecurity and of which i feel like we're really in the last couple of years taking our biosecurity so much more seriously and it was interesting you know the microchip issue initially delaying cars but then that leading to flow and effect of them needing to stay in a paddock for a while and then that leading to another flow and effect of the biosecurity risk because of that first one you would have thought oh we fixed the microchip shortage then the cars we ought to get here and then there's another unforeseen circumstance but as i think one of the texas tony said once the biosecurity hazard is out you can't really put it back in the box, so that's why this is so important. Matilda Marozzi, ABC Features reporter, as always. Thank you so much. Hopefully you're not waiting for a car too long. Tomorrow I'll be back with you and we'll be looking at the importance of regional banks and why so many want to keep them open. Take care. Speak then.